we began looking at the life of Moses and we looked at the first 40 years of his life, which uh, entailed his birth and how that he was uh, rescued from the Nile River by the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, how that he spent those early years being raised in the Egyptian culture uh, as, I guess you'd say, a grandson, if not a step-grandson or something of, uh, of Pharaoh. And then he gets involved and sees an altercation going on and he kills somebody and it becomes known. And so he has to flee the land of Egypt and he goes to Midian and he spends the next 40 years in the land of Midian. And he marries and he works as a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro and, and uh, everything seems to be going just about, I'd say, as well as could be expected for Moses. My guess is he was pretty comfortable in his lifestyle. He'd become comfortable there in the land of Midian. He had a family. He had roots. He'd set up. And then all of a sudden, God changed everything. He calls him from the burning bush and says that I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And you are going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, to the land of promise, to the land flowing with milk and honey. And we know that Moses tried to get out of it every way that he could, and God finally said, no, you're going to do it, and I'm going to send Aaron to help you. And so then last week, we uh, picked up where uh, Moses and Aaron come and confront Pharaoh and and uh, Pharaoh basically is not going to let the people go. And then they even made it harder on the Israelites. And so the Israelites kind of rebel against Moses, not going to be the last time, but rebel against Moses and get angry at him because their life has become more difficult because Pharaoh has made them make the bricks without the straw and, and all those kinds of things. So we were, we were kind of in the middle of that. And uh, talking about the plagues and the blood, the water to blood and the frogs and the flies and the gnats and the boils and the locusts and the, I can probably not even get all of them, but you know, they were all in there uh, and things like that. And one of the things we talked about last week was that I, I see, and I think most of you do too, a metaphor in the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses. As a metaphor between the conflict between God and Satan. Good and evil, if you want to call it that. And so we see all these things going on here. And we see in Moses a lot of characteristics that we see in Satan as well. Now, I don't mean to say that Pharaoh was Satan. But we see a lot of the characteristics going on here. And I was thinking about that this this week. And, and you know, when you hear the word compromise... Does that bring about a positive reaction or a negative reaction? And the answer is it depends on the situation. It depends on the circumstance. I think about our political climate today we have. And I think about how if our politicians today were our founding fathers, there would be no United States of America. We would not exist because it was because of compromise that the Declaration of Independence was written. It was because of compromise that the Constitution was written. You had very hard headed men. uh, You know, we haven't gotten more stubborn 
over time. We had men that were just as stubborn as folks today. But they understood that to get something done, there was going to have to be some compromise. You had the small states who were leery of the big states. You had the industrial, more industrial states worried about the agricultural states. You had the the slave states and the free states. You had all that going on. And if it wasn't for compromise, this nation would never have made it out of infancy. And you got to have those of us that are married, you know, there's got to be a little compromise in marriage. And so compromise is a good thing. And even in the church, in regards to matters of opinion, in regards to things that are not doctrinal, are not scriptural, there has to be some compromise. You know, what, what time are we going to have our worship service? I wasn't here, was it 1924? None of you were here either, but I don't think. I think this congregation began in 1924, is that right? 1920-something, I know that, okay? It's on a little plaque out there in the, you know, the, the, the plaque thing, whatever that is. Huh? Display cabinet, or the plaque thing, yeah, all right. Yeah, but at some point in time, those members who were getting together had to decide, you know, what time are we going to have services? Now, we all know the scriptural time. But, you know, I've been to places that don't go by the scriptural time. I don't know what they're thinking, but they don't go by the scriptural time. We have, uh, in, in just my, you know, just fairly recently... You know, we have changed the time for our Wednesday night services. You know, it was 7 o'clock for years and years and years. When Kenny and I, when I was in uh, uh, school and I was preaching at that little church in Havana, Arkansas, uh, I didn't quite understand this, but uh, when we first started going there, and it was, let me see if I get this correct, because it just seems opposite of what it should be, but... During daylight savings time, Sunday evening services were at 5. But then when it turned over to regular time, Sunday night services went to 6 o'clock. Yeah, some of you had the same expression on the face I did. I did not understand that at all. I could understand the opposite. You know, meeting earlier when it gets darker earlier. But I did not understand that. So we started during daylight savings time. I started preaching there. And then it started to become regular time. And they said, we're going to move services at 6 o'clock. Well, we had a two-hour drive. We drove two hours. And so, you know, there were only 25 people in the whole congregation. And so I was like, you know, would it really bother anybody if we kept it at 5 o'clock? So that, you know, we could get back to Cersei at a, at a reasonable hour. And I remember the discussion. Anybody know why we change it? There was a member there who remembered why they had begun changing it to begin with. And again, to me, changing it in the opposite direction. But that's beside the point. So they said, no, that's fine. Man, doesn't bother any of us any. And I was like, great, we can get home, you know, at a reasonable hour. But on things that don't matter, things that are not doctrinal, scriptural, there's got to be some compromise. However, 
when it comes to God's word and when it comes to our lives and living as God wants us to, there can be no compromise. Satan, one of Satan's greatest tools is to get us to compromise. And what we have in chapters 5 through 10, again, of of Exodus, is we have this dialogue going on between Pharaoh and Moses in between all these plagues that are going on. And what we see is Pharaoh trying to get Moses to compromise. Moses says, let the people go. Well, God says, let the people go. And Pharaoh begins to try to compromise. And I see in these compromises that Pharaoh tries to use on Moses, a lot of the same characteristics of the compromises that Satan tries to use on us to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And so the first one we have, we already looked at last week, and that is in chapter 5 and verse 2, when Moses and Aaron first come to Pharaoh and said, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? And I know that that's really not a compromise, but it's just an attitude of who is this Lord that I should obey him? Satan's first line of defense or offense, I guess, the first line of offense for Satan is to get us to deny God altogether. If he can get us to just, you know, say, I don't believe in God, there's no such thing or whatever, then you know what? He doesn't have to do much more, does he? With a person who totally denies God, doesn't believe God exists, Satan's work is pretty well done. He can pretty well leave that person alone and move along to somebody else. And we see in our world today that Satan has done a really good job of using this thought process. That there is no God, there is no supreme being, there is no ultimate power. To convince the world around us that they can live and do and, you know, however they want to. More and more our society openly rejects God. Even those who do, even some who do say they believe in God, reject God's word and reject God's will. We have atheism, humanism, secularism are being pushed at us from every corner. And we have folks all in our world saying, who is God that we should obey him? Well, God is the almighty creator of the world. We know that. We understand that. Remember Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so we realize that we know how important God is and who God is. God is the creator, the judge, the punisher, and also the savior of the world. Now we talked about this a little bit last week because you, you've heard me enough on this. You know it's one of my favorite parts of this whole discourse here. That when the frogs come. And the frogs are everywhere. And they're, you know, in the beds. They're in the they're cooking pots. They're, they're, you know, everywhere you go there's just frogs. You step out of bed in the morning, you're stepping on frogs. You get in the bed at night, there's frogs in the bed. You know, there's just frogs everywhere. And Pharaoh says, I want the frogs gone. And Aaron's, uh, Moses says, okay, you set the time. 
for the frogs to be gone. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I I don't get it. I just don't understand that. Pharaoh would rather pretend that he is in charge. That he has the power, that he is willing to spend another night in that filth and disgusting yuckiness of frogs everywhere. Remember, we're not just talking frogs. We're talking about what frogs leave, too. You know, all that's everywhere also. Uh, I think I'd like to spend one more night with the frogs. And that's kind of the attitude our world has. I mean, no sane person can look at our world and not see that just living any old way you want to is disastrous. It brings about all kinds of filthiness and wickedness and, and, and hatred and, and everything else. But our world would rather spend another night in all of that than to acknowledge that God exists. It reminds us, does it not, of the story where Jesus heals the demon-possessed man that had the thousand demons and cast them down the pigs and all of that. And remember that the town people came out and they finally saw the man dressed in his right mind. And they said, Jesus, would you get out of here? Leave us. The very thing they'd been hoping for. The very thing they'd been trying to do themselves and couldn't. Jesus did and they didn't want any part of it. And that is kind of what's going on in our world today. So then after the frogs and gnats and flies and things like that. He realizes that he must deal with the Lord. So he offers a compromise. And in chapter 8 and verse 25. Pharaoh says. Go sacrifice to your Lord here in this land. That's the second compromise. Sacrifice to the Lord, Johnny. Go ahead. Here in this land. Well, essentially what Pharaoh is saying is, you can worship your God, but do it where it's really not going to make any difference. There's really not going to be any change. Maybe they'd already been worshiping God some. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know at this point, you know, if they even remembered God and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But, but Pharaoh's just saying, well, just go and worship God, but don't let it impact your life. So today, this might be equated with Satan's willingness to let us believe in God as long as it doesn't affect us in any way. You know, we still in this country in many ways, still have the trappings of a God-fearing nation. You know, we still have, in God we trust, on our coins. We still have one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, We still, you know, have different things that that claim that we are a God-fearing nation. But is there really evidence of that? Not much anymore. And I think Satan is like, okay, if you believe in God, if I can get you to believe, say you believe in God, but not make any significant changes in your life, then that is just as good as getting you not to believe in God. I think I probably told you, I believe there's a thing called practical atheism. You know, there's literal atheism, you know, where you just say, I don't believe in God. Okay, I don't believe in God. Then there's practical atheism, where you say you believe in God, 
But you don't live like you believe in God. You live totally against God's command, totally do what you want to do or whatever. So for all practical purposes, you're an atheist. And that's kind of what Pharaoh is trying to get the people to do here. But the problem is worse when it's brought down to a personal level, not just a a national level. Satan is more than happy to allow us belief in God if it simply ends there. Remember what the scriptures say, even the demons believe and tremble. It's not enough just to believe. But you see, if Satan can't get us not to believe, then the next best thing is to kind of let us believe, but not let that belief make any significant impact on our lives. And so that is what we see in this. If our belief never manifests itself into faith, then Satan has won. He's accomplished his goal. Now, after a little bit longer in chapter, when, when it, this doesn't work, Moses and Aaron say, no, we're not going to worship here in the land. Then Pharaoh offers another compromise in verse 5 and 28, 8 and 28, excuse me. He says, I'll let you go off for sacrifices to the Lord in the desert, but you must not go very far. So the third compromise is, okay, you can go worship God, but don't go very far. I want to keep an eye on you. I think is really what Pharaoh's saying. Now, for those of us that are here tonight, the Sunday night crowd, the chances of Pharaoh getting us to buy in to number one are probably zero. You know, we wouldn't be here, right? If we didn't believe in God. If we were atheists, we, 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 we wouldn't be here. And we're probably not going to buy in to number two. You know, we understand, right, that belief in God means a change in our lives, that we have to live a certain way and and live according. And we may not always do it exactly right and perfectly, but we understand that that's the concept. Kind of like we talked about this morning, you know, that that we have to do what God tells us to do. But this third one, this might be where Satan begins to get at us. Okay. You can believe in God and you can let it change a little bit in your life. But don't go crazy with this Christianity thing. Don't go overboard. Don't go nuts. Go ahead and give a, a, a little bit and, and, and whatever. But, but don't go all out. I'm not sure how... Believe in God. Even follow him a little. Go to church. Have all the dressings. Outward appearance. But don't take that big step to commitment, especially even still in our community for the most part. You know, I don't know what the percentage is anymore, but I'd say most of the people in our community claim to be a member of some church. I think that's still true. I I would know about the activity level. But I would, because you know, this is the Bible Belt. This is the South. That's what we do. We believe in God. We go to church. It's kind of what we're supposed to do. But now, I'm not going to let it interfere in my work life, or I'm not going to let it interfere in my play life, or I'm not going to let it interfere over here. I'm going to believe in God, and I'm going to believe a little bit. I'm going to let it affect me a little bit, but not a whole lot. 
It's just one of many commitments that we have in our daily lives. I've got this written down, and so it must have really made an impact. But several years ago, Peter Joe Johnston, remember Peter Joe? Some of you don't, but many, most of you will. Peter Joe Johnston was giving a little talk, and I remember this quote. He said, Satan only wants part of you. God demands all of you. Wow, is that not right on? All Satan needs to do to drive a wedge between us and God is just get a little bit of us. God, on the other hand, requires total commitment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, all thy mind. Remember when we were doing the uh, Are You a Fan series? And we noticed that God, that Jesus, when he was talking to the people, Jesus did not, I, I, I kind of made this statement. I don't know whether you totally agreed with it or not, but if you didn't, you're wrong. No, uh, you're just mistaken. Uh, Jesus does not want to be first in our lives. He wants to be only in our lives. Jesus does not want to be the first of many commitments that we have. All right, I'm going to put Jesus first. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, even come back on Sunday night, and then I'm going to do all these other. No, he wants to be over all of our commitments. He wants to be ruler over every part of our lives. And Pharaoh was saying to Moses, well, if you go out, just don't go very far. Don't get all, you know, charismatic on us. Don't get all, you know, crazy on us. Just, just keep it, you know, okay. And everything will be all right. And God says, no, he wants us totally committed. When we fall into Satan's trap of allowing ourselves to only be marginally committed, then he's won. And there's a sense in which everybody gets kind of satisfied. You know, if we're marginally committed, we feel satisfied. Well, you know, I believe in God. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm kind of okay. I feel pretty good about that. Other people around us will see us and they'll be pretty satisfied. Well, that's a pretty good person. You know, they go to church and they, they do this and all that. That's pretty good. Satan will certainly be satisfied. Because he's got part of us. The one who really will not be satisfied is God. Because he says, I want all of you. Don't just make a little commitment, but make a total commitment. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, after some of these other uh, plagues come along... Pharaoh offers another compromise, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 10. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, he said, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. So after all these plagues, he says, send just the men. God, I believe, intends for our faith to be a family matter. 
I believe we ought to be such a family unit that we don't leave anybody behind. You know, that's why Joshua said at the end of his career, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whether it's husbands and wives or fathers and mothers or grandparents even, we ought to be especially mindful of what kind of legacy and faith we are building in our children and in our grandchildren. I don't think any of us wants to go to heaven alone, leaving our family behind. And so we want to have that opportunity. We want to make sure that we do the things that we can do to help our children in the ways of the Lord. It's not just a mother thing. It's a father thing too, to raise our children. That is why, you know, when I talk to the young people, especially, that's why I stress You need to marry a Christian. You need to marry a Christian. It is hard enough as a couple committed to God to maintaining that and to raising children. But if it's only one of you doing it, it is doubly impossible. I mean, not impossible, but it's very difficult when you don't have that support, when you don't have that, that encouragement, when you don't have that mutual faith between husband and wife, mother and father. And so Pharaoh's like, well, you know, we'll just split the families up. And Moses is there and say, no, that's not going to work. And then the fifth compromise in chapter 10 and verse 24. He says, Go worship the Lord, even your women and children may go with you, only leave your flocks and your herds behind. Now when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the idea that stuff is important to us. Stuff is probably way too important to us. And Satan knows that if he can get us to rely on our stuff, if we, if he can get us to, to not be willing to give up our stuff, then he's got us. You remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, as often he would do, turned the question back on him. Well, you know the scriptures, you're a smart guy. What do they say? Well, don't, you know, lie, cheat, steal, basically the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, do those and you'll live. And the young man said, I've done those since birth. And Jesus said, well, okay, there is one other thing. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Whoa. And it says at that, the man turned away and went away sad. And I like what it says right there. It says, before Jesus said that, he said he turned to him and he loved him. He loved him. Jesus saw a man that was that close. If ever there was a time for compromise, would that not have been it on Jesus' part? Dude, you are so close. You keep all the commandments, you're doing everything. How about... A third of what you got. Would you settle for a third? Would you sell a third of what you got and come follow me? Now, I don't know 
I have no insight into the rich young man. There might have been a sense in which he might have gone for that. You know, hey, I'll sell a third, give it to God, and I still got two-thirds. I'm a rich young man. That's what it says I am. And so, you know, I'll still kind of be a rich young man. But Jesus let him turn away and walk away. Because he realized that his stuff was more important to him than following Jesus. Our stuff cannot be so important to us that we cling on to it and not follow God. Willing to give it to him. You remember the rich fool, not to be confused with the rich young fool or the rich young ruler, but the rich fool, you know, that, that the bumper crops and he tore down his barns and built bigger barns. And then he said, nah, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to eat, drink and be merry the rest of my life. Well, that didn't last long, did it? That very night, struck dead. Who got all his stuff? I guess his children or grandchildren or whatever. They got all the stuff. You know, there's going to be a time when... The stuff isn't going to matter anymore. We were at my parents last week. It was a, a little awkward. Because I guess they're getting at that point in their lives when they realize that, you know, the end is at least in the foreseeable future. And so my dad takes me down to the closet and he gives me all his guns, all his, these knives he had and antique swords and things like that. Anybody want to duel? I'm getting pretty good at it. Okay. All this, all this stuff. I'm thinking, why didn't you give it 20 years ago? Some of this stuff's worse stuff. But anyway, and so he gives, and then my mother says, while we're all sitting there, Take whatever, take it, whatever you want of the Christmas stuff. Because I'm not putting it back up anymore. But you know, the time when that Christmas stuff was kind of important to her. Now, not more important than God, you understand, but kind of important to her. There was a time in which these antique guns and knives and swords and stuff were pretty important to my dad. Not more important than God, but pretty important. But they're to the point now where they realize that stuff doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. And the same is true in our lives, that our stuff does not matter. That's why Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust and thieves and all those kinds of things can't destroy it. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where all those things can destroy it. Some of you, I'm, I'm thinking of Ronald and Sherry. Others of you maybe have been in the same situation, you know, where you've had a fire and lost everything. You know, some pretty important stuff, probably. But not that important. Not worth losing our souls over. And so we need to make sure that we do not allow Satan to compromise with us. Don't let our stuff or our pursuit of stuff. Now, let me just say, yeah. It's not necessarily stuff. It could be the pursuit of stuff. It may not that we be that we really have anything, but we want stuff. 
And so whether it's, you know, work 4,000 hours a week and neglect our family or neglect worship or neglect God or whatever in order that we can get stuff. Remember what Jesus said. I always heard this wrong growing up. Jesus did not say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. If we put that love of money or stuff ahead of God, we are in trouble. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about that last. We're, going to, we're, we're not really going to get it. We did the frogs. That's my favorite plague. Okay, so we did the frogs and uh, darkness. Ooh, did we talk about that last week? Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, that's the freakiest one is the darkness. Uh, yeah, because I remember telling you, the worst would be the frogs and the darkness. Yeah, together. That, that, that would be horrible, okay? So next week, we're going to talk about that last plague, if you call it a plague, but the death of the firstborn and all the implications that that has. But tonight, I just wanted us to think about Satan's tactics. If he can just get us to compromise a little bit, then he's got us right where he wants us. Isn't there some kind of old Arab saying that if you let the camel stick his nose in the tent by morning, he'll be all the way in there? Or did I just make that up? I just made that up? Oh, I was hoping I made that up because it sounded really good. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you give a mouse a cracker, he'll ask for a glass of milk. I don't know. Is that another one? Anybody ever heard that one? Did I make that one up? No, I didn't make that up. Well, maybe I did. But you get the idea. Compromise starts so little. But it can have devastating effects. If you're here this evening, there's some way can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com, or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.